Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Podmedic, and we've got a great show as always for you, at least in my humble opinion, we do. Um, great returning guests tonight, as well as a lot of good information on recent weather outbreaks, and that'll all be coming up here shortly. But we can't do any of this, and I mean that quite literally, without Sam Bradley, who pulls show topics together, guests together, all the other stuff. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. Thanks a lot. Ah, oh, gee. Thanks, Jamie. Well, it's fun to do, and it's, you know, some of the guests we have are awesome, especially the return guests. I didn't tell Dan Zaner that he was uh, one of 2021's all-time favorites with this crew. So in case I didn't mention that to you, Dan. But yeah, and we have uh, Becky and the other Dan, the other half Dan, with us, which is really good because there's a lot going on in the weather. And we have Dr. Joe. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hey, guys. Hey, girl. How's how's the weather down there in Memphis? Uh, Very nice today. Sunny and a little cool, but perfect. Okay, so Jamie's getting uh, the wet stuff, so it must be the... The final edge of this going through. So from what I understand, Dan DePodwin, um, this start, how long has this storm been going on, for heaven's sakes? Yeah, it was really a, a cross-country storm, not not atypical, but one that moved on shore in the west. Uh, I guess it was probably early in the week or late in the weekend, last weekend, and Rolled across the country, brought over a foot of snow to parts of eastern Colorado. Missed out on, if you're in Denver, though, you or the front range there, you basically missed out on uh, accumulating snow from this one, although March is the snowiest month out in, in most of those places. And then as that progressed east, it started to draw moisture up from the Gulf of, Me- the, the Gulf of Mexico, and you combine that, that, that moisture with a pretty dynamic storm, and you get... Uh, a lot of severe weather, which is what we saw this week. Uh, it was, uh, let's see, trying to remember the days here. Today is Thursday. Um, so a couple of days ago, we had the um, had the Texas tornadoes. And then the, the, the day after that, we had the uh, uh, tornadoes across uh, Mississippi and Louisiana. Uh, I guess that would be Monday and then Tuesday. And then yesterday was a pretty, a much quieter day. There were a couple of uh, reports of hail and damaging winds in parts of the Ohio Valley. Um, and then we'll, it, basically today we, we, we've quieted down. But Monday and Tuesday were very, very active uh, with uh, there has been reports of close to 100 tornado reports in the uh, couple of days span there. And uh, some EF1, a uh, couple EF2s and uh, even one or two EF3 tornadoes uh, that unfortunately claimed a couple of lives in the earlier part of the week. Uh, the, the, the most major ones seem to have been uh, it, it just in and around the Austin area, north of Austin, Texas, as well as obviously the uh, pretty well-covered New Orleans uh, tornado on Tuesday night. Well, I heard at one time uh, Texas was having tornadoes in one part, wildfires on another part, and a blizzard warning in the panhandle. Now, how weird is that? Well, I mean, Texas is Texas is a big state, so they can't get is. a lot of weather, yes. but uh, you definitely get that uh, – Variety of weather across Texas, especially in March, uh, it's pretty volatile month across most of the nation. You're you're still having a lot of cold air locked up in Canada, so that dives south from time to time, and you're getting that as that sun uh, angle moves closer to the equator. There, as we head towards summer, you're getting warmer uh, air being able to be drawn northward. So you get a big clash of air masses a lot in March and into April, which is why you see those big swings. And when you have clashes of air masses, you usually have thunderstorms, and that's what we have experienced so far this week. 
Well, Dan Z just sent us a link on why the South gets more of this kind of weather. So uh, you care to speculate on that, Becky or Dan? I'll let Becky, Becky? go first if she has anything. Um, yeah, I was actually reading a, an AP article on that very topic, and it was so part of it is is a little bit the changing climate. You're getting drier air out in the west and more moist air in the southeast. Um, so the conditions are are sort of shifting from the more traditional central plains to more of like the south central southeast. Um, but part of it is they're also becoming more damaging and deadly because there's more infrastructure. There's more homes that have been built. Um, in these areas than previously existed, which is kind of a kind of an obvious one. I don't know if the article you um, posted in there has some of those same same thoughts, but those are just a couple of the reasons. Um, yeah, that was why partly why I posted it, and and uh, I was surprised at the source, AOL.com of all places. It was like they actually had a pretty good thorough uh, analysis of just what you're talking about of of the the changing. Uh, climate and moisture and also the interaction of the built environment a lot of times pretty much every every time we chat about how um you know the, these events happen whether there are humans there or not but they become uh, go from a natural hazard event to a natural disaster event when they interact with people and p things that people build and as, as you mentioned there's a lot of a lot of stuff that people have built in the southeastern united states well, we have more questions for you on that note. Uh, Dan D., you have a comment? Yeah, just to add to to those two points, you know, the um, the population in the southeast, as Becky was saying, I'm not sure what the stats are in terms of percentage, but the population has increased dramatically in the last couple of decades in much of the south. Um, and then if you look, we, we've actually been looking at this at AccuWeather over the last uh, several weeks, and especially, but also in the last uh couple years. And there's a lot of research out there on on the uh, trying to understand the uh, whether there's a shifting area of tornado prone areas or if it's more of just a cyclical thing where it, uh, you know, for the last, you know, basically in the mid part of the of the 1900s, the Great Plains were more favored. And now in the last 30 to 40 years, it seems like more of the basically Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee areas has been more favored. Um, we basically have seen over the course of the last like couple decades, basically an area from Chicago down through New Orleans and then west towards um, parts of southern Missouri be the mo be see an upward trend in tornado frequency, whereas places like Dallas and parts of Oklahoma have seen a downward trend. Not that uh, that will continue, but that that's sort of what we've seen in the last uh, 40 years or so. So that's something that people are studying more to understand why. Well, I guess the storm brought us 60, at least, well, in the two days, 60 tornadoes went through five states. And it was called a rare multi-vortex uh, tornado, or they were. And the, the New Orleans tornado had the second strongest, which was an EF3. Um, Becky, let's go back to you. Do you have any thoughts on that? why we would um, have these rare multi-vortex tornadoes. I mean, the, the tornado strength is, that that's something that's pretty difficult to predict and something that scientists are still working on predicting ahead of time. But it's it's really just all the meteorological factors being there. Um, and in the case of the New Orleans tornado, everything was, all the conditions were in place, but the atmosphere, it's what we call a cap, and it just it held on for a little bit longer. And then when it finally that cap released, everything was really explosive. Um, so that tornado just, it, it 
it strengthened very, very quickly. Um, the strongest tornadoes tend to have these multi-vortices kind of wrap around them and can cause more damage. Um, I think that you've even heard them referred to as like satellite tornadoes. Like the El Reno tornado, which was massive, had these, which caused the deaths of some storm chasers. Um, Ooh. Yeah, they're it, generally, I don't think, I don't want to, I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to go there because I don't know if that, that's a fact, but stronger tornadoes, you, you don't usually have the multi-vortice action unless it's a very, very strong tornado. Um, I don't know, Dan, do you, if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, he just mentioned that the El Reno was back in 2013. Yep. Do you have anything you want to add? And then we'll go to Jamie. I know he's got a burning comment out there. No, I think that was a good summary that Becky gave. Okay, Jamie. Well, no, and I, I wanted. I remember um, beginning of the week, uh, the news, um, national news, covered this storm coming. I mean, I think there was a lot of prediction that it was going to be a lot of severe weather coming across those exact areas that it hit. And um, I heard more than one meteorologist on the news stating that make sure you had multiple ways to receive weather alerts. And this is something I know, Becky, you've talked about many times in the past about getting those notifications is so important and having ways with you, you know, having an app on your phone and having a weather radio and having all the other things that you might need so that when that alert comes, you pay attention to it and you acknowledge that it's real. Um, And I think that this is one of those things that, um, you know, we're seeing that the predictive nature of, of what the meteorologists are doing is working, but people still have to heed the warnings. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, Becky just mentioned something I was going to ask a question on was this seems awfully early for tornadoes. And she commented, why don't you tell us what you just put in there, Bex? I mean, so tornadoes in March are not unheard of, um, but you usually get the more prolific outbreaks generally in later March and especially in April and early May. Um, so the moderate risk that was issued um, for, oh, now I'm going to get them mixed up. Um, <laughs> Dandy, was, was the Missouri was the earliest day three, not Texas or Mississippi, I mean. Uh, yes, the Storm yeah, Prediction Center okay. issued the uh, moderate risk, which is the second from the highest risk category, um, three days in advance of the uh, Mississippi tornado and Louisiana tornadoes on Tuesday. So that was issued on a uh, Sunday. Right. Um, but I mean, overall, between you know the SBC, which is the Storm Prediction Center, the National Center, and you know AccuWeather other national outlets like this was a very very well forecast event um you know we were calling for you know a significant severe weather outbreak as much as six to seven days in advance so if people were paying attention they knew that that you know monday and tuesday and even into wednesday were days that um you needed to be paying attention to the weather and have those multiple ways to receive warnings and there are some uh, success stories that i've heard um follow some people who are National Weather Service folks who did some of the damage surveys and, you know, people got the warning. They went into the most interior place in their house and that room, that closet was the only thing that survived. I'll throw this this in the chat and maybe Dan Z can comment on it because I think it's a it's a fascinating success story of, you know, receiving a warning, taking the correct action and ultimately living despite your house being destroyed around you. Oh, yeah, we have a lot for Dan. But, Joe, did you get any of this down in Memphis? 
We got uh, heavy rain and uh, local flooding, but uh, nothing beyond uh, a few, uh, a little bit of a thunder shower and a lot of rain. Ah, there you go. So Dan Z, oh my God, it looked like we had about a hundred questions to ask you, but you, <laughs> you, you put up something. Well, first of all, remind people what you do besides build things in your car for your kids, and. Uh, <laughs> Talk about what NERI is and this wind load standard that you're working on. Yeah, so uh, so I'm in a pretty amazing position where I get to talk to awesome scientists about the hard work that they do and don't have to worry about differential equations myself. Um, so I work for, for NERI, the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure, um, which is a, a National Science Foundation-sponsored uh, center that brings together a whole lot of really great people from all over the country at uh, major universities who have large-scale testing facilities for natural hazards, field-deployable assets, uh, and uh, we've even added in social scientists who are amazing folks, um, and backed all by some supercomputing facilities for processing all the data that's gathered from all those wonderful places. So. Um, one of the things I posted in the chat here was something that uh, one of our NERI researchers, uh, Elena Sutley, out at uh, University of Kansas, who's fantastic wind engineer um, and also uh, very active in the social science community, um, in addition to her, her engineering focus. But um, she and her colleagues with uh, NIST, so the National Institute for Standards and uh, Technology, I believe, um, they have been working for a very long time to update what we posted here is the AC, ASCE 7 building code. So it's essentially one of one of the building codes that, that um, localities can adopt to design their structures to. Um, and typically um, that has been essentially an economical design criteria to create acceptable levels of protection of the built environment. Um, and for a very long time, it has not been, uh, it hasn't included a specific chapter on tornadoes because they were so infrequent in the built environment. As we've been talking about, they would happen at a, in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma and knock over a couple of cows in a barn and, you know, no big <laughs> deal. Um, but recently, as, as we've been alluding to, they've been shifting ever more towards larger areas of built environment. And so, the powers that be at ASCE, American Society for Civil Engineers, uh, decided, hey, there, there does need to be some design criteria for, for tornadoes that vulnerable communities can, can rely on. And so this is the, the first time since uh, 2016 where they've added a new criteria for, for loading. Back then it was adding for tsunami loading, which if we remember our history back to 2011, um, there's a huge tsunami in Japan, which kind of uh, set that in motion. These these codes take many years to change, uh, some, sometimes decades. Um, there's a cycle that every every few years, uh, every every six years, this the standard as a whole is updated. So it takes a while to to update it, and for good reason, because we want to, the these codes to be based on a lot of research, a lot of field data, um, not just engineering and science, but also you know, economics and things like that. So it takes a while to update the building code, uh, which is one of the big things that uh, that NERI does 
is uh, transferring the research that our um, our network does into practice. We call it tech transfer. And so looking for uh, really good research from wind engineers like Elena and a lot of other folks uh, who have been doing a, a lot of really good work in how tornadoes and the types of wind they produce affect different types of structures, um, both in the field and in the lab, so that they can uh, now have this uh, really useful document to for engineers and, and designers and architects to use. Well, that actually is a question I want to ask you and also Joe, looking at it from a USAR perspective, because I don't know that, I mean, this question is so obvious, but I don't know that we've ever asked it, but what is the most, the best building uh, what are the best building materials for safety in a tornado? What are the worst? And then I want Joe to talk about that from a USAR perspective, as far as what he's seen in these kind of environments. Yeah, well, a lot of, a lot of things depend on where you put your house. Um, uh -huh. So you could, you could have the best materials in the world, but if you put it in the middle of a wide open area that is prone to tornadoes, it's going to be having a bad time. Um, so first you gotta you gotta think about your site selection, uh, the direction of the house, things like that. You may be may not be able to take that into consideration, but that's that's part of it. Also the size of your building. Tornadoes in general have a small footprint for the most part, um, at least relative to things like hurricanes. And so the, the bigger the building, the bigger target it is, and so it had a greater chance of being struck, especially by those really high wind speeds at the center of our tornado as it moves along its path. Um, however, if you get a, a really large tornado that it's a mile wide, well, you're, you can just engulf your smaller buildings entirely in the high wind field. So there's pluses and minuses to, uh, to those. Um, but really, when it comes down to it, you're, even the best building code like this is, is not going to make your house into a safe room. It's not going to... Um, turn your entire structure into something that can survive an EF4 or an EF5 tornado, that's why you have a storm shelter shelter or a safe room. But it, it is providing provisions um, for at least a higher level of, of tornado wind loading um, for, for lower wind speeds. Uh -huh. um, other things like if you're, if you're in a hurricane prone area, many things will be familiar to you. Bracing for garage doors, because that's the biggest part of your house that's a, a vulnerable point as the wind presses on your garage. Um, if the door isn't properly braced, that becomes a huge path for air to get in your house and blow your roof off. Um, so, and once the roof is gone, you're, you're pretty much toast. So things like garage doors, windows, roof envelopes, the whole thing, the idea is to tie your structure all the way from the shingles to your foundation together. So you have a consistent, we call it a load path, basically a way for the, the force of the wind to go through the structure of your house into the ground and not break anything along the way. So your whole house can go to Kansas with you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, and the, the other thing that's, we're an emerging area of research as well. And again, it's because of mostly economic factors is mobile homes and manufactured homes. They tend to get the, the yeah. brunt of these uh, you know, tornado outbreaks and because of the 
low um, amount of them compared to you know our, our typical site-built homes, um, and also they're somewhat disposable compared to uh, the rest of the, the building inventory. There hasn't been a whole lot of research focus on them, but well, more, not a, more, more not the population exactly has shifted there. They're not tied to the ground, <laughs> and, right? And so they're they're not tied to the ground as um, with anything but some metal strapping. Um, and so there's a significant amount of research. Again, our friend Elena Sutley, who's fantastic, um, it, it, her research team and some other colleagues are looking into ways to better anchor those manufactured homes as well as better standards to build those homes to in the first place. Okay, I want to get back to Dan, but Becky, you had a question for Dan. Yeah, so that's not part of the new standard. Um, yeah, but, <laughs> oh, he's uh, answering it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're psychic, Dan. That's just what she was going to ask you about. Yeah, so that's, you know, some 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 work for the next six years or so until the next in the next update, maybe they'll include that. And, and I'm not actually sure I need to check to see if this building code actually applies to manufactured homes. It may not. There, there might be a, a different standard that applies to manufactured homes. I'm not exactly sure. Becky, did he answer all your questions on that? Because you asked about whether it was going to be part of the new standard or whether there is a way to anchor mobile homes. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a friend that does research specifically on manufactured homes in the Southeast. And something he's always talking about is just the lack of anchoring with these homes and how that's just such a contributor to to damage in tornadoes. So I wasn't sure if that was part of this overall research that Dan was um, sort of elaborating on. Dan? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was just checking to see if, the, if this this code actually applied to manufactured homes while you were, while you were talking there and couldn't find anything. But well, in the meantime, we can we can go to Joe because I'm curious from a USAR standpoint, Joe, what kind of buildings do you find are the most common that are have such damage that you have to rescue people and which ones provide more of a safe haven when you do? Well, I think it follows right along with what we just heard about the, uh, you know, traditional uh, wood structure family homes are obviously pretty, uh, uh, pretty good targets for tornadoes, particularly, uh, and especially if they're not anchored together, the walls are not tied together, all of the things that we were just talking about. Uh, if you look at commercial buildings, then uh, obviously, the more you move toward buildings that are reinforced concrete uh, from a uh, wind event, the the better protected you are. But you know, I I think also a lot of what that's all about is maybe not necessarily engineering the building not to fall down, but engineering how the building falls down so that. Uh, void spaces are there uh, for people to uh, to shelter in, and uh, some of those um, uh, areas uh, provide safe havens inside those structures. You know, Jamie, when we have both Dan and Becky on, um, you have about a hundred links in the sidebar here. <laughs> oh, it's fun to keep up with of them interesting too. Interesting information. <laughs> 
between the two of them. I don't know how they find things so fast. It's 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 just really amazing. Fingers of fury. <laughs> yes. And Vic, sorry, not sorry. Well, we're not sorry either because this is good stuff. Um, anyway, what was I? Oh, Dan is this, uh, Dan Z. Is there something you've been working on? Because we're not that far away from hurricane season. Yeah, we we sure aren't. And there's actually a new award from our friends, the National Science Foundation called Niche, which I, it's so new, I can't even remember what the acronym stands for. Um, but the <laughs> the basic gist of Niche, here we go, it's, it's a mid-scale research facility. Um, it's the national full-scale testing infrastructure for community hardening in extreme wind surge and wave events. Huh. It's a mouthful, mouthful, but it's basically <laughs> combining the the best of the best knowledge from Florida International University and everything they've learned over the years at the Wall of Wind facility. Uh, for those following along or, or might be new, the Wall of Wind is a open jet wind tunnel, which means you can blow things apart without worrying about affecting the wind tunnel hardware. And it is 12 feet tall with six, or sorry, 12 mine exhaust fans. Each of the fans are six feet in diameter. Mm. And you can blow stuff apart with 160 mile an hour winds and rain and all sorts of stuff. Um, so they're combining what they've learned from that facility with what has been learned at the Oregon State University Hinsdale Wave Research Lab, which typically does things with tsunami and storm surge. And usually the wind and the waves are in separate facilities. But the idea with Niche is to design a facility that has both. So the award so far is basically just for the design of this whole crazy thing. Um, so it doesn't have a facility constructed yet, but the idea is to combine um, at as large a scale as, as we can to physically simulate um, climate-driven hazards like hurricanes um, on a coastal environment and so be able to show how the wind interacts with the waves and the waves interact with the coastline and structures. Uh -huh. Yeah, super cool stuff. Jamie, you have a question. Uh, just, I'd just like to point out for folks that live in the United States, you know, when you wonder what some of your tax dollars goes to, it is <laughs> some of the things like this that is really cool and really helps save lives. Um, you can't really study the effects of these things unless you can put them together in some meaningful fashion and study it on a scale that makes sense for the engineering to learn something from it. So um, I, I just wanted to make sure we point out that this is something that, that just really, uh, I think, is what helps us continue to build community resilience, which we talk about on the show all the time. I'll hand it back over to Sam because I think Dan DePodwin yes. has a Dandy. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jamie. And I think that we've covered a lot of really interesting facets here in this in this episode so far about the entire system and like in terms of resilience and how people can be protected from uh, you know prepared for and then protected from um, significant hazards. You know, we, we've talked about people receiving warnings, having a way to do that. We've talked about the science to be able to predict stuff more than a week in advance, at least giving people a heads up. And then obviously the warnings when the tornadoes occur. And we've been talking about the resilience of, of building codes and such. So it's, we've really covered a lot of these different areas and all that working together is what helps uh, pe you know, protect people and businesses and, and assets. So, mm -hmm. 
Amen. Joe, just as an aside to this, when you're doing your USAR work in a tornado environment, what are the most common types of injuries that you see? Uh, lots of injuries from flying debris, uh, obviously collapsed structure, you know, results in uh, fractures and crush syndrome and lacerations and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the the amount of debris that is flying through the air at high speeds, I think people don't appreciate how dangerous that is. And uh, so, you know, injuries related to that. Um, we also see uh, things like fire, uh, electrical injuries from down power lines, uh, people being uh, blown off the road in their vehicle or uh, you know, blown into uh, a drainage ditch or an area where there's flooding. Um, you name it. it, it really runs the gamut, I think, in an awful lot of ways. And, and should you park under a bridge? Yes or no, Joe? <laughs> Becky says no. We're taking a vote here. She capitalized. Well, she capitalized. I think it depends it, on so. what it is you're you're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, it, it's unlikely that the bridge itself is going to be blown away, um, but it certainly can funnel um, air through it, which can result in injury. They're often uh, under the bridge is the low-lying area, so you know water collects there, that sort of thing. Uh, so I, 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 there's probably a few good points and a few bad points to it. Dan uh, Z, your thoughts on that as we wind down here? <laughs> it made me nervous. Uh, to for the last <laughs> time I was in a tornado possible area, and I was parked under a bridge, but it was to avoid hail and lots of it. Oh uh, yeah, there's all those. Yeah, there's those things too. That come along with it. So, oh my God. So, uh, Dan D, do you have any uh, follow-up comments here as we wind down? Thoughts? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I think we've covered. We've really gone through the whole thing tonight. So, yeah, we did. Yeah. And if Jamie puts all those links up, this is going to be a long notes for this episode. <laughs> I, I, I want to highlight I, I, one I, of those <laughs> links before we we sign off here. If if anybody's interested in learning more about wind engineering and the things that. Uh, our, our colleagues in area are doing. There, there is a conference coming up in May in Lubbock, Texas, if you want to head down there, the 14th America's Conference on Wind Engineering, uh, be held at the National Wind Institute at Texas Tech. And so they do all sorts of fun stuff, like shoot two by fours through various materials with a cannon uh, to simulate uh, debris flying in tornadoes. Um, wow. And um, my good buddy from the University of Florida, Forest Masters, um, is going to be giving a talk on uh, the Wednesday, the 18th there, um, about technological trends shaping the future of wind engineering. So if you're if you're interested in that kind of stuff, um, check out uh, Texas Tech and the National Wind Institute. The conference is going to be great. Well, you know, it's funny, Dan, when you put that up, it looks like it says conference on wine. I was going to see if Joe wanted to go <laughs> with me. <laughs> I, there will definitely there will be, be wine, probably. wine flowing <laughs> at some point there. <laughs> Yeah, somebody else likes that. That would be Joe. Um, Becky, I guess you're pretty passionate about the whole bridge thing, huh? <laughs> I mean, a little. It's it it really. There's not much about it that's that's a good idea. If you're parking to shelter from hail, you get a bunch of cars that then try to do that, and it just causes a traffic jam in conditions that are already poor with low visibility. 
Um, so that can become a hazard in and of itself. And it's, it's just, there's a reason that if it's a severe weather day, you should know places to shelter at home, at work, and every point along your commute. There's a reason the Kansas Turnpike has shelters along its route. Hopefully you have time to get there. Um, it's just plan ahead, know that there's going to be severe weather and know what your plan is going to be. Um, so you're not faced with the last resort of parking under an overpass, which just generally is not a good idea. I know they survived it in Twister, but that's not a real life scenario. That is really well, good to know that the Kansas Turnpike has shelters. I did not know that driving I back didn't in either. Colorado. I don't think it's the only <laughs> place that does, but they definitely do with the Kansas Turnpike. <laughs> do we need that need in Colorado. That yeah, for real. Um, I had a really clever comment and I forgot, <laughs> forgot what it was. Oh yeah. The idea is like Jamie said, listen to the weather and B, maybe you shouldn't go out if it's looking like there's a tornado coming. Probably a good idea. Joe, any final, final thoughts from you? No, I think we, we've covered an awful lot of stuff and, and I think it just shows you how variable how many variables play into uh, how safe or dangerous a structure or a weather system may be. So that's why folks are uh, smart people like uh, that are on this podcast, uh, help us to understand the intricacies of the science. Well, Jamie, good luck with all these links. I can't wait to see them. I'm gonna have to come back into this chat and <laughs> pull some out. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot, um, and it's interesting. You know, I know I know um, from my driving up and down the I-95 corridor that uh, when you stop at the state rest stops, um, the the buildings where the restrooms are housed are marked as storm shelters. Um, they may not, you know, be up to some standards, but they are better than nothing. And they are in a lot of cases. I've seen, you know, the signs. You know, these are these are recommended shelters, or at least. The, cl the closest thing you're going to find in the middle of a highway. Um, Is it better than your car? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we all saw, I mean, if you haven't seen the video of the, the truck being overturned by yes. the tornado, then re overturned back onto its wheels so that it drove wow. away. Um, <laughs> a, no, where, 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 yeah, that's, that's a thing. It happened in one of the tornadoes this week. And um, the, um, <laughs> You know, the guy was lucky and they were wearing their seatbelts. So they were able to maintain their position in the driver's seat when all that happened. So um, a couple of good recommendations there. Anyway, um, just want to thank Joe and the team at Paragon Medical Education Group for sponsoring this great discussion on the hazards of uh, tornadoes and severe weather this time of year and some of the things that are going on to mitigate it. Um, you know, and talking about all the research and things, Joe, you guys do a lot of research and have a lot of experience that comes to bear um, when dealing with um, searching structures following an event like this and things like that. You don't just go in blind. You guys know what you're doing. Well, thanks, Jamie. Uh, there, there is a, quite a bit of science and experience to it, and uh, we're happy to share that. Uh, all we ask is that folks give us a call so we can uh, – custom design some education for them. Uh, they can reach us at paragonmedicalgroup.com on the web or uh, at Paragon Medical Group on Facebook or always through the Disaster Podcast. Thank you, Joe. And I urge folks to really head over and take a look at what you guys have to offer. Um, it is just, um, 
you know, training unlike anything you've probably ever seen before, and it will make a difference in your system for sure. Um, Becky, where can folks find out more about what you're up to? They can follow me over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Excellent. And um, Dan DePodwin, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at WX Depot. D-E-P-O, and also on the Disaster Podcast Facebook group, and also stay prepared for more severe weather. Looks like another round of storms uh, next week in similar spots, uh, Tuesday, and then again on Wednesday. So just getting into this severe weather season. I was afraid to ask, Dan, but you told us anyway. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> we're just just in March, so plenty yeah. of time left to go, unfortunately. Yep. Uh, Dan Zaner, um, I'm going to have to look up to see if you're our most frequent guest because you're on a lot <laughs> I, and we appreciate I that. Like on every other week, I, I think it's I'm, either I'm you or, or, or Dan McGuire has been on quite a bit too for um, yeah, the, CISM two, perspective. So two favorite Dan's two favorite Dan's, but Dan, where can folks find out more about what you're up to and more about what Nary's up to? Yeah, you can, you can follow our podcast design safe radio everywhere. Podcasts are sold. Um, or anything NARI related is at designsafe-ci.org. Um, and you can follow at NARI Design Safe and all of your favorite social media channels. Excellent. And thanks for coming on today and bringing this great information and all the links. I do like them <laughs> and I do include them when you, when you give them to me. So um, you are most welcome. <laughs> awesome. Um, and Sam, how about you? All of the aforementioned places uh, under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 and in the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Jamie? And you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations out there. Just look me up and uh, friend, follow, or otherwise interact. Uh, and, of course, Disaster Podcast group on Facebook. We always look for more folks there. And um, over at DisasterPodcast.com. And don't forget, when you're over at the DisasterPodcast.com, you can subscribe to the show. So there are links right there to subscribe to the episodes on your favorite mobile device, iOS, Android, um, email, you name it. You can get updates on when new episodes drop and we want to thank everybody for coming on and talking about this topic we've got some great topics coming up for you in the coming weeks so be prepared and uh sam thanks for pulling this all together tonight well you're welcome jamie and i I think of all the great points that were made tonight one of yours was the most salient pay attention to the weather you know, get a weather radio in case the, you know, battery powered or wind up or something in case the electricity goes out so you know what's going on. And like Becky said, people's lives were saved because they did pay attention. So there you go. 